0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, media are certainly following the story of the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. It's giving us a chance to see how floods of reporters can get out there and print a lot of words about a thing and still somehow not ask the deepest questions or demand the most meaningful answers that might move us past outrage and sorrow to actual change? Are there not forces meant to protect people from this sort of harm? Is it awkward for reporters to interrogate the powerful on these questions? Well, absolutely. But if they aren't doing that, why do they have a constitutional amendment dedicating to protecting their right to do that? So there's a test underway right now in Jackson, Mississippi, where residents who have been harmed many times over are now being told that the appropriate response is to take away their voice. Here's where a free press would speak up loudly, doggedly, and transparently about what's going on. Makani Temba is a Jackson resident and a volunteer with the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition. She's also chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies. She's going to bring us up to speed on Jackson, Mississippi. And that's coming up. But first, a quick look back at some recent press. As progressive economist Dean Baker has written, the Washington Post calling for cuts to Social Security and Medicare is pretty much like the sun coming up. As Connor Smythe reports for FAIR.org, the Post came out swinging in a February 5th piece with the headline, Yes, Social Security and Medicare Still Need to Be Reformed and Soon. The Post made its intentions clear in the final graph, writing that, Mr. Biden was, quote, among 88 senators who voted in 1983 for a bipartisan grand bargain negotiated by a commission led by Alan Greenspan and signed into law by President Ronald Reagan that rescued Social Security. Forty years later, if he and Republican leaders are willing to work in good faith, Mr. Biden could safeguard the greatest legacies of both the New Deal and the Great Society, Close quote. So let's translate that. In 1983, Congress rescued Social Security by cutting it. That 1983 law didn't change the age at which you can retire and draw benefits. It left that at 62. It simply said you'd get less money, for retiring at any point before the new full retirement age, which reached 67 last year. So, for instance, those retiring at 62 today face a 50 percent larger cut in benefits for early retirement compared to before 2000. Well, The Washington Post apparently remembers these reforms fondly, and they want more. Last year the board published an editorial headlined The Medicare and Social Security Disaster that Washington is doing nothing to fix that placed Social Security and Medicare in direct conflict with other government programs, saying that the necessary vast expansion of outlays for the elderly would, quote, hollow out the government's ability to spend on education, infrastructure, anti-poverty programs, and other investments in children and working age adults, close quote. Except none of that is true. As Smythe writes, the Post's callous zero sum argument doesn't bear scrutiny. A 2019, for example, report from the University of New Hampshire shows that total government spending in the U.S. at 38% of GDP for healthcare puts the U.S. at 12th out of the 13 highest income countries. And while the U.S. is high in healthcare spending, That has less to do with largesse for the elderly and more to do with administrative bloat and inflated prices. What we're really talking about when we're discussing Social Security and Medicare is what we want to do with our resources as a country. We have more than enough wealth to provide solid retirement benefits and good medical care to the elderly. The question is, do we want to do that, or do we want to cut the programs that do those things? It's that simple. And the Washington Post favors cuts over human welfare, and they should just say that. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. So this is CNN on February 17th, quote, And ahead, the plan to create a court system for the wealthy and mostly white parts of Jackson, Mississippi, and separate from the system for the mostly black community, close quote. It's hard to know how to respond. For sure, it's good that CNN is choosing to point its national audience's attention to what's happening in Jackson. But at the same time, if it's not too much, why is a deeply anti-democratic racist action just a sort of blip on the evening news, like a new drink at Starbucks Mississippi Bill 1020 gives the state of Mississippi the control to appoint uh, systems. And and Jackson Mayor Choque Lumumba says it would be less than honest to call the effort anything other than racist, which leads us to headlines like The New York Times on February 21st in Mississippi racial outrage at court plan. Well, Counterspin listeners will likely be attuned to the difference when journalists use racial, when racist would be the more appropriate word and framework to use. So what does all this mean in the story of Jackson and what questions and conversations would help us understand what's going on there and point us in the direction of a useful response? Makani Temba is a Jackson resident and a volunteer with the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition. She's also chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies, which is based in Jackson. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Makani Temba.
1: Well, I am so glad to be back, and I'm so grateful that Counter-Spin is still going
0: strong. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we keep on keeping on. Well, I, I just feel in this case that a lot of folks would appreciate some story, some understanding about what's actually happening and how we got to this point. You know, if I read reporting today, it's about water treatment and then about governance, but how would you bring somebody up to speed who is maybe just looking at the latest headlines?
1: But I think one of the most important things to understand that HB 1020, which I know has gotten most of the media attention, is one of about a dozen bills, a dozen bills, right, that the state legislature and the governor have really it feels like a like a set of guns. It's like feels like right. artillery right. pointed at our city. To be honest, it's like you know legislative weaponry. And these bills, which include 1020, do all kinds of damage. 1020, I think, got a lot of folks' attention because of its well, you know, basically creates a new governance structure in the middle of the city that's predominantly white area, northeast Jackson. It also includes our downtown where the Capitol is, and all the way up to the border of Ridgeland, Mississippi, which is the neighboring city, and, and actually into a portion of Richland, a new jurisdiction which is called the Capitol Corridor Improvement District. It originally came out as a way to make sure that the Capitol had resources to do you know, gardening and and some improvements for beautification. And the state came back after the city of Jackson, the residents of Jackson, the mayor of Jackson, we fought really hard to get federal dollars to finally come directly to Jackson to address our water issues, because money was coming in to the state for water infrastructure, but that money was not getting to Jackson, yep. even though a primary reason why the money was coming in. So that was sort of the, the context, right, that that we were able to work with Congress to come around the state because they were blocking the resources. They even created a special process just for the city of Jackson to have to have approval for the use of funds that were dedicated to the city. And so we were able to get around that and get a sizable appropriation, about $600 million, actually, to address what is about a $2 billion problem. But we were excited. We were planning. We were there. And it seemed like this is like not only revenge for figuring out a way to be resilient and to address the problem without having to deal with the state and all of their shenanigans, but the set of bills taken together not only create this governance structure, take away revenues from the city. There are other bills that restrict our use of our sales tax revenue to only water infrastructure, so we're not able to fix roads or do anything else with it. And, you know, and, and there's no other city with that kind of restriction, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, You know, when they say, this is what you spend with your revenue, Right. Like, that's not something happening anywhere else in Mississippi. It also creates a police force that has jurisdiction over the city of Jackson and over the Jackson Police Department. And they say the reason why they're doing all this is to try to address the crime in Jackson. But that doesn't seem to be true because crime one is actually going down. And when crime was at those sort of record-high that it was a couple of years ago, the state was not engaged at all, except to, to use it as a way to talk bad about us. The other thing I think people should understand is that Jackson, like many majority black and majority brown cities, folks denigrate those cities and defame those cities as a way to devalue not only the people, but the property, the business, There's the commerce that happens there because they don't want the competition. Right. So I think that's important for people to understand. So this whole array of bills that they even have a bill that restricts how the mayor can veto things or not. right? I mean, it's, it's not just about the water because then I think it would be a different kind of response. And the other thing is another bill that actually seizes the money that Congress allocated to the city and creates a regional water authority that is not responsible for addressing the problems in Jackson. We're only responsible for receiving the money. And the governor will have three votes on this commission. The lieutenant governor, who they're in lockstep, has two votes. And this is a nine-member commission. The mayor has four appointments, but two of them are dedicated to two other cities. But really, Jackson has two votes on a nine-member regional panel for money that was allocated directly to the city. So they're seizing those funds as they have done other federal monies. What I also want people to understand is there is no law against this. Right, 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 right. There's no law against this.
0: Exactly. So if we had a conversation about community needs, What would that look like? Who would be in that conversation? What would that look like if we were talking about the conversation is like, oh, the community failed. But that's not the story. And if we were going to talk about ways forward, we would, I believe, include different voices. And I just want to ask you, like, what could that conversation uh, look like?
1: Well, I think First of all, I would love to see more investigative reporting and less punditry about it. You
0: right, say it. Mm-hmm.
1: That's important because you know it's easy to make this. And I know in my own writing, I talk about this as the David versus Goliath story, and it is in a way. Jackson doesn't have the votes. You know, this is a, a supermajority Republican state house that does all the kind of ill they want. Even though, because of the pressure from outside the state and within the state, there's been some negotiations, but we're still facing the brunt of the awfulness that all of these bills combined contain. But, yes, so what happens with the money when the federal government gives money to Jackson? Where does it go? Why don't we see it? Right. And why is that okay? Yep. And also, we're not the only state that experiences. These kinds of shenanigans, this kind of uh, misappropriation of funds all over the place. Michigan's an example. Texas is another example. States make applications to the federal government using the problems of their communities of color that basically happen because of the lack of investment, which is the first step, and then the extraction. Because it's one thing to divest yep. or to not invest. Right. But... But in Mississippi, they literally extract what they want from the city. So, like, when this money comes in, they extract that money and say, okay, well, great, we got this money. We talked about the problems. And now we're going to take this money and make communities that already have smooth roads smoother, Uh communities that already have good water infrastructure even better. We're going to keep up with that and then blame the folks for... What they've stolen from us. Yep. Where is the investigative reporting that looks at the documents, that FOIAs, the application, that tracks it? And I'm so grateful for the work that the Clarion Ledger has done around the welfare scandal, because that would have never been uncovered had it not been for investigative reporting. Right. But, but I think if there was real investigative reporting around what happened in Mississippi, folks would see a pattern of theft and extraction from low-income people, from black people, from brown people. It isn't even that the white communities in Mississippi all benefit, because many of them do not. I think that they would discover that a few businesses, a few people, a few politicians are benefiting from this, and most people are not. And how do you have a state that's against Medicaid? Right? I mean healthcare for their folks. Yeah. So I think that more investigative journalism would yield these kinds of stories and that it's been investigative journalism in the past that helps lift up what's happening in places like this. And, you know, like you think about we would not know who Sammy Lujana was if folks weren't telling the story outside of Mississippi because if it was up to them I mean I mean this was a state that was trying to keep Sesame Street from coming on the air. Because it was, you know, too forward, right? Exactly. Too progressive. Who, who actually, they had to be sued by folks in Mississippi, including you know the late Everett C. Parker, who media av- activists actually get yes. an award in his name, yes. where they sued television stations in Mississippi in the sixties because they would literally not show. Anything about the civil rights movement or the marches or what was going on on the news, and they had to sue to force that, and they would and they would actually block out national news coverage in Mississippi of these stories. So we're dealing with a long legacy. So journalism is critical, like good journalism, investigative journalism, what yes. some people would say, actual journalism. Yes, it's critical to exposing these this kind of theft and and dishonesty. And also just the issues of democracy. Like, what does it mean to be in a state where there is a Republican supermajority that does not reflect the proportions of who lives here at all?
0: When I see a headline like Time Magazine's The mayor of Jackson, I guess it said, had a racial vision for his city. Okay. All right. Whatever. But the water crisis may have put it out of reach. So when I see that headline, what I hear that telling readers is we tried to do it and we failed. And so stop thinking about that. And so you can only talk to people who are interested in change And media are just maybe not the way to do that, you know, and yet so many people that we talk to, their agenda, their understanding of what is politically possible is set by media, you know, and it's media saying, oh, hey, the mayor of Jackson wanted to do something. But he can't. And that's their understanding of, well, I guess we we shouldn't even try.
1: Fortunately, Time Magazine is not going to dictate to us. For real. We not do, thank God. And I think, I mean, in many ways, the world was captivated by Mayor Shokwe Antar Labumba's vision around Jackson being the most radical city in America. And that radical vision for the world was, like, very compelling. And also the story of Mississippi, right? The story of Mississippi is, oh, everybody's deep down. I think that him articulating that when he was first elected gave folks a different view for a moment, right, of, you know, this is a place where there's been resistance. He's not the first person to articulate that. And, in fact, Mississippi's radical legacy has roots In Reconstruction, this state had the most radical constitution in the country during Reconstruction, and a majority black legislature, all those things. And then, you know, when the Confederacy took back the state in 1890, that's the kind of governance we've been dealing with ever since. But they don't represent the majority of the state. Yep. And they never have. And so I think that, you know, it's not true that the water crisis threatens our, and I would say collectively, Jackson's radical agenda because, you know, that, oh, another convention of corporate media and oftentimes storytelling is to make it, reduce it down to one person when he was always part of a movement and a legacy and a history that many, 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 many people are involved in. That what threatens the agenda, so to speak, has been Jim Crow politics and that the water crisis is a manifestation of Jim Crow politics. You have a water crisis because there's no investment in infrastructure when there should be and that those decisions are racialized. I think that's the other piece of the story is, you know, folks are not dealing with how deeply racialized the work, the legislature's agenda, and I shouldn't say the whole legislature, let me be clear, the Republicans, because it's interesting, in Jackson, almost all the Democrats in in both houses are black. Right. guess why, right? So we have this essentially apartheid approach to governance that has been in effect since 1890. You know, with some breakthroughs, with some fights, and and the Voting Rights Act was really critical to helping things move forward. And it's really been the folks in Mississippi and Alabama who blood was on the line who made that legislation happen. And I want to be clear about that: the whole nation owes Mississippi and Alabama a debt. Yes. You know, to the elevation of democracy—that's critical to understand. And so. You look at that, and I want to see reporting about that racialization, right? I want to see reporting about how this paradigm of whiteness and anti-blackness is driving the policy agenda. You know, people want to call it Trumpism, but this was
0: Trumpism before Trump. Yes. 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 This is
1: where he got it from. Yeah. You know,
0: this is not new.
1: Sessions in Alabama. And from this Jim Crow legacy, and that's the crisis that we're in. There would be no water crisis if there was equity. There would be no water crisis if the state of Mississippi had any kind of ethics and allocated the money in which they received from the federal government to the places where there's a problem. And you think about it, how crazy is it that you won't invest money where the problem is and fix the problem. But that is kind of politics as usual, not just in Mississippi, but all over. And that ought to be the crime. Look for the hashtag JacksonJXN undivided. You'll see that online. That will let you know where the petition, where the petition is. And also, um, IDW. 21.org, and make sure I'm saying that right. Let's get it right. It has an extensive piece that has um, how people can get involved as well and a link to the petition site. So there's there's an article there that has a link to the petition drive. We're asking everybody to please sign and share it. And it also goes through the list of bills, and there's two petitions listed in this piece. One is a petition to the state around this attack on Jackson. The other, and this is, I think, really important as well, is a petition by the family of Jalen Lewis. Jalen Lewis is a 25-year-old black father of two who was killed by the Capitol Police, basically execution style. And his family is still looking for answers. It happened in September. There was a witness who is why we know what we know. But the police themselves have not released any findings. Um, They're supposed to be investigating it. but And so there's a petition there as well for Jalen Lewis. And that's one of the reasons why we're so concerned about the Capitol Police having jurisdiction. They have a police chief. Who's not accountable to anyone in the city of Jackson. They're appointed by the attorney general of the state. <laughs> and so there's, there's a whole range of issues that are just so problematic about this. So that not only will we have this unelected, you know, sort of governing body over A big part of what will then not be a part of Jackson but still in Jackson, right, where we go to downtown, we shop, all of these kinds of things. But we'll have this occupying force that's not accountable to any of the residents at all that's already shot several folks and killed one in just the last few months.
0: We've been speaking with Makani Temba. She's a volunteer with the Mississippi Rapid Response Coalition as well as chief strategist at Higher Ground Change Strategies. Uh, thank you again, Makani Temba, for joining us this week on Counterspin. And thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.